This podcast is supported by Netflix Instant Streaming. Thousands of TV episodes and movies on your computer or mobile device instantly stream by Netflix to save you time, money, and hassle. Free 30-day trial now at netflix.com slash APM. Hi, Rico here. And Brendan. And we know you're eager to hear today's show. Of course. Maybe you're at this very moment on your way to a dinner party in desperate need of the dazzling conversation fodder contained within this very episode. And yet here we are delaying your salvation to tell you that it is the end of our fiscal year and that if you ever thought about contributing some cash to help us pay the bills, now would be a perfect time to do so. We know fundraising stuff's annoying. Yes. But imagine how much more annoying your life would be if this show didn't exist. That's right. You'd be on your way to the party listening to, you know, I don't know, your partner, your child, Mumford & Sons. I don't, I don't now, know. Now, sure, Mumford & Sons don't ask you for money. They don't need it. No. Advertisers and radio stations and perhaps you have already given them cash. But we are public radio, ladies and gentlemen, and a big part of our funding comes directly from listeners like you. Without you, we disappear. Just like that. Leaving you unarmed with arts and culture info as you make your lonely way towards dinner party disaster. We're worth a few bucks is what we're saying. That's what we're saying. That's what I was just saying that we were saying. So just head to dinnerpartydownload.org, contribute what you can, and thanks. And now, here's your icebreaker. Guy walks into a bar. He's sitting there having a drink, and he starts hearing some whispering. You look wonderful today. Oh, where did you get that suit? It really fits you. And he says to the bartender, he says, what's going on? I mean, I, I keep hearing these voices telling me these great things about myself. What? And the bartender says, oh, those would be the peanuts. They're complimentary. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from writer Ellen Stein that'll help break the ice. Yep. Her new book about the National Lampoon came out this week, and we'll chat with her later. Also, politician and activist Ralph Nader is here to answer your etiquette questions. Because that just makes sense. Somehow. And there's more. We've got a party playlist from the band Rogue Wave, and pop legend Natalie Cole tells us how Latin music saved her life. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Nelson Mandela remains in critical condition. Paula Dean cooking up controversy after admitting to using a racial slur in the past. A historic win for same-sex marriage this morning. DOMA is ruled unconstitutional. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with John Spong. He is a senior editor at Texas Monthly. John, what story are you going to be talking about at your parties this weekend? Well, there's a new study that was just published by the National Weather Service that kind of explores statistics having to do with death in the U.S. from lightning strikes. Uh, and there's some really interesting tidbits involved in that study. I guess there are a lot of wide open spaces in Texas, so this is of particular interest to you guys. Somewhat, yeah. Uh, the activities that are at the top of the list happen a lot here, and they're all high-risk activities. Really? I didn't know golf is, is that big a deal in Texas? But weirdly, that's at the bottom of the list of activities in which people are most apt to get struck. Uh, fishing is at the top of the list. Really? 26 people died from lightning strikes fishing last year, as opposed to only eight playing golf. They're on open water. And they're holding a pole. So that does seem kind of dangerous. <laughs> in the rain. I, I have a question. I want to see if my hobby is on the list. Uh, napping. Do, yeah. Has anyone died? Lightning? Nap, Oddly, no? uh, camping is on here. I don't know how often you nap outdoors, no. but it's a yeah, risk. No, I'm, I'm just talking about a hammock. You know, it's outdoors, yeah. but not. A metal hammock with a rod attached to it. <laughs> what, are, what are some of the other, are there any others that might be a surprise to us? Soccer. 13 would... people died last year, completely unexpected by me. Yeah. What? You know what? That's not so surprising because have you seen soccer players' hairstyles these days? They're like, high. They stick straight up. That, that's what makes me wonder about some of these other categories because were these people fishing? Was it because they were fishing or did they just happen to be fishing but had a mullet like a soccer <laughs> mullet? <laughs> that would be the worst. What is the common thread here between lightning victims? You don't want to be a soccer player fishing while camping, basically. <laughs> Hang a sign on your neck. It says, I want to get hit by lightning. And there is, in fact... A gender disparity, it's uh, 82% male, 18% female. Wow. So mostly men get hit? I think it's because men's belt buckles are bigger. <laughs> well, in Texas, you have to worry about snuff cans in their pockets. And so you get that tin <laughs> lid on there, and that's going to be an issue as well. Wow. Wow. And also, those newfangled aluminum Stetsons, just don't <laughs> don't wear those anymore, you guys. All right. Well, John Spong, thanks for this lightning round of small talk. <laughs> oh, no. Thanks, y'all. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a fire hydrant, except instead of spraying water, it sprays booze. 
It's a very, Doesn't really help the fire there. No, it's very dangerous fire hydrant. Feeds the fire. Yeah. And we start with the history part as always. This week back in 1868, a Milwaukee inventor patented a gadget that changed the world. No, it wasn't the beer bottling machine. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Angry no one has good penmanship these days? Blame Christopher Latham Scholes. Scholes was a printer, a newspaper editor, and a politician. And somewhere in there, he also found time to invent stuff, like a machine that printed page numbers into books. And then he read a magazine article that changed his life. It was about a newfangled contraption described as a literary piano. By hitting keys, you could print letters right onto a piece of paper. But it was a clumsy gizmo, so with the help of a pal, Scholes designed a better one. With it, he could tap out a sentence faster than the fastest penman in town could write it. Scholes called it the typewriter. One problem, though, he didn't have cash to manufacture the thing. So to prospective investors, he sent letters. Typed on the typewriter, of course. A money man named James Densmore took one look, and he was in. decision he regretted when he actually saw Scholl's prototype. It printed words on the underside of the paper, so you couldn't see what you were typing. It could only print capital letters. And if you weren't an expert typist, the keys kept jamming. An issue, since Scholl's was the only expert typist on earth. Scholl's fixed the jamming problem by making sure common letter pairs like T and H didn't sit next to each other on the keyboard. Voila, the QWERTY configuration we know today. As for those other flaws, the machine became the first big-selling typewriter anyway. Alas, before it proved a hit, Scholes sold his share of the patent for a few thousand bucks. But the typewriter made Densmore a millionaire. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the drink to go along with it. I'm joined by John Dye. He's the owner of Bryant's Cocktail Lounge in Milwaukee, home of the typewriter. And John, am I right? Uh, Bryant's is the oldest cocktail lounge in Milwaukee? Yeah, definitely. We've been here since 1938. You've watched the typewriter come and go from, right, from the right. cocktail lounge. <laughs> Although you don't sound like you've been around since 1938. No, no, 1939. So. All right. Well, you sound great. <laughs> so you heard the history lesson. Uh, what kind of drink did you decide to make? Well, we decided to create the Hunt and Peck cocktail. Okay, so an homage to those people who never quite learned the QWERTY keyboard. So what's in your drink? Well, we start with uh, two ounces of Kinnikinick whiskey, which is a local whiskey, made about uh, one mile south of where Latham Scholes invented the typewriter. All right. And then we add uh, one half ounce of Punte Mass. What is that? Uh, it's a nice bitter Italian vermouth. And we use that because the story is a little bitter. Yeah. Now, uh, Latham Scholes uh, walked away with about $12,000, and his partner walked away with more than a million. So. so we have some American whiskey, and we have some vermouth. What else is in your drink? Uh, then we add one half ounce of Ramazzotti Amaro. And the reason we chose that is actually because I really don't think that you could type Ramazzotti on an old keyboard <laughs> without jamming it up. It really put that, the QWERTY to a test. That, that sounds about right. Although if you misspelled Ramazzotti, I don't think a lot of people would notice. Right, so. that's true. <laughs> and what is it? What 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 is in that? It's a nice bitter Amaro. It has a little bit of sweetness, a little bit of bitterness, sort of rounds out the drink. Uh, then we add a pinch of salt, two dashes of Angostura bitters, and two dashes of Peychaud's bitters. And so then what are you going to do with all these ingredients? Add ice, give it a nice long stir until it's very cold, strain it into a coupe glass, add an orange twist, and... We have a hunt and pet cocktail. And I have a question about the lounge. Do you get uh, internet service or, or phones functional <laughs> in your bar? You know, strangely, sometimes cell phones don't really work that well in here, and I like to think it's some sort of ghost of the past. There's nothing more annoying than being in a bar and everyone's just looking at their phones, hunting and pecking, as it were, text messages <laughs> to their friends. <laughs> right. You know, Brendan, that is, that's actually a good point. The QWERTY keyboard lives on even in our smartphones. Right. Like our own tiny literary thumb pianos. <laughs> that's right. So in a way, Scholes was the father of texting. That's true, I guess. Which makes him the Grim Reaper of spelling. <laughs> <laughs> and meaningful human interaction. <laughs> LOL. Uh, people, here's an idea. Type this URL into an electronic device, dinnerpartydownload.org. You'll find all our cocktail recipes there. 
So we've made small talk, sipped a drink, but no party has truly started without some music to play. Here with suggestions is Zach Rogue, frontman of the band Rogue Wave. Since forming in 2002, their anthemic indie sound has graced the soundtracks of over a dozen TV shows. They're on tour now in support of their new album, Nightingale Floors. Here's Zach to suggest tunes from other musicians. Hey everybody, this is Zach Rogue from the band Rogue Wave, and I've been asked to give you some lovely music to listen to while hosting your dinner party. I'm the dinner party DJ, so take what I listen to, and I promise that you will have a very nice dinner. So the first song is by a band called Cotton Jones, and the song is called Somehow to Keep It Going. I was actually playing a show one night locally. There was a band that went on first, and we were on second, and between us, this song was playing. And I was just stunned by the song, like, what is this music? Come on, baby, let the river roll on. Come on, baby, let the river roll on. I think this song will kind of instantly make you get what the band does. The gentle streams of sound, beautiful harmonies, musical restraint where they could go harder with something, and it's just it's all gentle waves. You know, if you're coming over to my house for dinner, you have to pace yourself. Kick off your shoes, some nice wine, if that's what you want, that's fine. If you want to have a glass of whiskey, then that's also fine. Cotton Jones will not let you down either way. Another song I've chosen is by Sunny and the Sunsets, and the song is called Death Cream. It has this really kind of sludgy rhythm to it, kind of janky sounding percussion, and this kind of really awesome double track vocal. What's great about it is the counterintuitive rhythm that hits when the chorus hits. It's like a hiccup, and it's instantly catchy. You know High Fidelity, the film when John Cusack says, I'm about to play the beta band, and he knows that when he puts it on, people are going to ask who it is, and they do. It's the same thing. Whenever I put this song on, people are like, who is this? Always happens. And uh, I'm like, that's oh, Sunny in the Sunsets. You should get it too, man. The final song I've chosen is by Sharon Jones and Dap Kings real kind of throwback music but they make it sound fresh and it is called how long do i have to wait there's two things i love about this song the first thing is the sentiment of the music the singer the voice is saying something really kind of painful and yearning yet it feels good to hear it <laughs> you know and i guess maybe you feel a little less alone in the world when you hear someone else going through it well, I get I love the interplay between the bass guitar and the lead guitar. They're, they're like playing cat and mouse, and it's just infectious. They're like back and forth that only really good musicians, I think, can do. Everyone is like a crack musician, and a lot of times I think that makes for boring music. For me, I feel like I can't relate to it because I'm so flawed. You know, I need, I need something wrong with the band. But for some reason, the song totally works for me. And I, when I feel the booze settling in, maybe it gets crazier. This song is the perfect kind of, <laughs> is the perfect capper. And if you are interested in hearing a song from the new Rogue Wave album, Nightingale Floors, a great song to start with is Figured It Out. I figured it out. No, I haven't figured it out, <laughs> and I probably never will. Well,
party soundtrack from Zach Rogue of the band Rogue Wave. They're on tour through July. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, Natalie Cole remembers two major musical influences. My first piñata, my first dish of Mexican food. When the Dinner Party Download continues. This podcast is supported by Netflix Instant Streaming. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your computer, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. Streamed now by Netflix, a great value. Netflix Streaming has lots of movie and television options, including past seasons of Project Runway, Mad Men, and Arrested Development. Watch them using Netflix Instant Streaming and find thousands of other TV series and movies during your free 30-day trial at netflix.com slash APM. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, documentarian Jason Wise proves drinking wine does not kill brain cells. And pop diva Natalie Cole tells us how her body influenced her body of work. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. And this week, it's author Curtis Sittenfeld. She's written several best-selling novels, including Prep, which the New York Times called one of the best works of fiction of 2005, and American Wife, a fictionalized account of the life of former First Lady Laura Bush. Ah, yes. Her latest book, Sisterland, came out this week. It's about twin sisters with psychic powers, one of whom tries to lead a normal suburban life, while the other becomes a professional psychic who gains national attention after she predicts an earthquake. Mm. When I met up with Sittenfeld earlier this week, I asked her if she believed in psychics. My husband has told me that when people ask that, yeah. I should say, I knew you were going to ask me that. Ah. <laughs> but I don't, somehow I don't, I don't have enough fake spontaneity to mm. pull it. I mean, maybe I'll practice <laughs> my fake spontaneity a yeah, little more. Yeah, but you probably but... could have easily predicted I would ask I know, that, maybe. I, know. I had a hunch. Uh, I, so there's a character in the book who s- says there's so many unexplained phenomena in the world that, that yeah. we do accept. And and we don't there's all this stuff that we we don't understand and these contradictions and mysteries that we live with. And and in the book the character says basically I don't think psychic abilities are are more far fetched than yeah. any of that. And I feel a, a bit that way. Like I'm not sure that every person who identifies as psychic is psychic, at, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a, according to some like widespread definition. But, but I like it's not a big part of my life, or it's not like I belong to like a psychic powers cultivation support group <laughs> or something. But I'm open to it. Yeah. Well, I was curious about that because this is the first book you've written that has a supernatural element to it. Mm-hmm. And as a writer, I'm wondering, is it freeing to break out of reality? Or is it overwhelming? Well, it's funny because I think the fact that the the book has this, you know, paranormal streak in a way made me overcompensate and make everything very plausible. So it's a book that's very, you know, it's it's actually told from the point of view of the twin who doesn't want to be psychic and, and finds, you know, having premonitions unsettling and disturbing yeah. and even embarrassing. And and her husband doesn't even believe in them, so yeah. he can kind of be a stand-in for like the potentially skeptical reader. But I I do think that the book, I mean, if you if you describe it in two sentences, of course you have to say a psychic makes a prediction that there'll be an earthquake. But really, it's it's sort of more about like living in the suburbs and being a mother of young children, which even as I say that, I'm like, and some people might think, oh, God, I thought I was interested, but now. Well, I do want to ask you about that, too. I mean, parenthood is another theme of this book. There's a constant hum of activity and anxiety around Kate, the narrator, as she's thinking about her children. And I was wondering if you had made a conscious choice to kind of include many of the, some of the mundane elements of parenthood in this book. Yeah, I would say that I did. I mean, I I don't want to sort of uh, include them for the sake of including them. And and I've even thought, like, I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and, of course, I've spent some time in variations on mommy and me groups. And and you can definitely very easily write satires of those. There's, yeah. They're not that hard to, to mom. You know, it's like when all the moms, like, have their hands in the air, like, doing the itsy-bitsy spider or whatever. But it's like, I, that's not really the book that I wanted to write. Like, it just seems, I, I yeah. feel like... It's too easy, and it's not very nice, and I am complicit in all. You know, like, I have my hands in the air singing the It's a Bitsy yeah. Spider, too, like everyone else. <laughs> so, But I I mean, I wanted to present life with children, life with the small children, 
as it really is. Um, and I did, so there's a prologue to the book, and then the first sentence is basically the narrator awake in the night because she couldn't fall back to sleep after nursing her baby. Yeah. And I would sometimes as I was writing, I would think to myself, have I really written a novel that starts with a sentence about breastfeeding? And like, it turns out the answer is yes, I I have. But you also kind of make Viv, uh, the the protagonist's twin sister, she kind of represents the childless faction. And she has a quote at one point, she says, children are a problem that people create that they congratulate themselves for solving. Where did that quote come from? And, and that, It's funny because actually one of my – I have two sisters and a brother. One of my sisters said, did I say that to you? And I thought like, give me some credit. I made that up. You know, like that came from my I, – I mean, I, again, I have two young children. They're like the light of my lives. Or I feel like being a mother is amazing. And I also recognize that – that I fall into all these cliches. I'm one of those people. Like, I, th- I think that I'm the first person who ever experienced motherhood. My children say the most delightful, enthralling thing. So I do, I like to think that I have the ability to uh, imagine the world from other people's perspectives. All right. Well, we have two standard questions that we ask each of our guests. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? <laughs> This is the question that I could live without is why do you include sex scenes in your in your book which Whoa. I've been asked since 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 prep first came out which I feel like that's a pretty gendered question that I think maybe women get more than men. And it's, to be fair, you know, towards askers of that question, in my book, American Wife, it was a fictional retelling of the life of Laura Bush. There were sex scenes. And of course— so people are assuming George W. Bush is half of that. Yeah, yeah. So it would be like, like, what literary value do you think it holds to encourage us to think of George W. Bush's butt or something? It's like, that's a fair question. That is a fair question. But it makes me feel like I'm uh, this—that I come across as this— lascivious person that I'm not. And so I thought, okay, I'm not going to include any sex scenes in Sisterland. And if they're like all over the book. You can't, like, start, you can't start with breastfeeding and not have, <laughs> right? Where'd sex. that baby come from? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on to the, the second thing we ask of our guests, which is tell us something we don't know. And this can be about you or it can be an interesting fact about the world. Okay. I'll tell you something that's Super interesting, but I only half grasp it okay. myself, so you might have to follow up with Wikipedia. All right, we'll do that. Um, so, obviously, this book is about twins. There's there's a phenomenon of half twins. And Whoa. so, I know. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I think, okay, I think maybe it's the same father. Okay. But the... The, there's the, you know the twins, the embryo splits. Okay. And then it's fertilized by... I almost feel gross saying this. Sperm. Okay. By different okay word sperm. You write sex scenes in books that millions of people I, read. But I don't read them out loud. Um, <laughs> so different um, sperm fertilize the eggs. Yeah. Instead of, yeah. Right. So they're, and they're ha- they can be, it's like half identical twins. Mm. All right. So they don't only have to dress half alike. Yeah, exactly. Just go. their pants. <laughs> So, Rico, I did some reading up about half-twins. That's good, because it sounds, it really freaks me out. <laughs> it's not because you you're an only child. It's not that freaky. Okay. Basically, it's a super rare phenomena scientists think is caused when a single egg splits and then gets fertilized by two different sperm. Okay. So you end up with twins that look alike, but they have different DNA. Wow. Yeah. So, so if the Olsen girls were half-twins, uh-huh. Mary-Kate couldn't commit a crime and pin it on Ashley is what you're saying. <laughs> I guess they, that's right, yes. Okay. <laughs> and that's a concern of yours, the, yes. the Olsen twins. Yeah. I worry about it yeah. a lot. I worry, I worry about you worrying <laughs> about that. And now, time to eavesdrop. Singer Natalie Cole has won nine Grammys since her debut album in 1975. Today we overhear her tell us about two gifts that led to her new album, one from her dad, Nat King Cole, and one from her nurse. Hi, I'm Natalie Cole, and I have a new project out, a new CD called Natalie Cole in Espanol. Back in 1958, my dad made his first Spanish record, and it presented the opportunity for the family to go to Mexico. Si Adelita se fuera con otro, la seguiría por tierra y por mar. That was my first trip outside of the U.S., 
and it made a very big impression on me. I saw my first piñata, and I had my first dish of Mexican food. I loved it. Years later, I mean, like, a lot of years later, I'm here doing this Spanish record. The idea actually started probably about 10 years ago with me and my sister, who was then running our dad's estate. Her name is Carol. She has since passed away. Her passing away also coincided with me getting my kidney transplant. I met this woman named Esther while I was in the midst of going through dialysis with my kidney. And once I had spent a day in the hospital with Esther as my nurse, she then watched me on The Larry King Show several weeks later. In watching it, she said, I wish that I could help this lady. And I ended up getting the help from her because her niece actually passed away. This beautiful young girl, Jessica, was an organ donor. And Esther went to the family and said, I know someone who needs this kidney. Normally, you don't get a chance to meet your donor family. Often, they don't want to, or even the recipient doesn't feel comfortable, but they wanted to meet me, and I thought that was really nice. And they're lovely, lovely people, sweet as they can be. You know, I dedicated some of the record to them, and I talk about them in my credits and just thanking them again. My donor family is from El Salvador, and I find it not coincidental at all, but that it must have been meant to be because it seems that in the past four years, all of a sudden, I've had this burning desire to do this Latin record, you know, and they called me crazy the other night. I'm, I'm loco Latino now because I have this Latin kidney, but <laughs> I don't mind. <laughs> And I have to tell you, something really interesting happened. When I was in Istanbul earlier this year, we had just finished the record, and I was in a cab, and the, the radio was on, and my father came on singing a Spanish record at 7 o'clock in the morning. I said it, and I just thought that was the most extraordinary thing that could ever happen because I'm in Istanbul. You know, it was just so odd. I just felt like he was kind of sending his blessings. Natalie Cole, her Spanish-language album Natalie Cole and Espanol came out this week. This track is Acercate Mas, featuring vocals recorded by Nat in 1958 and by Natalie in 2013. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, the food. And Brendan, I don't know why, but Americans seem to love watching people in the food industry get really stressed out. Hmm. It's inexplicable. We love competition cooking shows like Top Chef, of course. Also, there have been this slew of documentaries like Kings of Pastry, which is about pastry chefs trying to obtain France's highest cooking honor. Which is is a slap on the face and a pack of galois. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's not quiet disdain, so it's an honor. But uh, there's a new movie called Some That Ups the Ante. It is about wine experts struggling to pass the insane test that entitles them to be called master sommeliers. This week I met the director, Jason Wise, and I started by asking what attracted him to the subject. Yeah, well, I graduated film school and did what I think all proper film majors do is you immediately bartend. And we used to drink wine in somebody's garage until probably four in the morning every Saturday when we all got off. So all these servers and bartenders would go to a friend's garage. And in the process of this, a friend of mine who worked at Morton's Steakhouse named Brian McClintock, he said, I'm taking this exam. You should come in and take a look at it. And I walked in and watched them blind taste and it just absolutely floored me. I mean, I'd I'd never seen anything like this in my life. It felt kind of like watching a ballet with no music. I wanted to set music to this tasting thing so badly. Maybe this would be a good time to explain to people who haven't seen the movie what this test really consists of. Obviously, blind tasting of wines is one aspect. So this organization has this top test that makes you a master sommelier. And this this level has three parts, three days, one each day. 
And you can only take this test once a year. So it is incredible buildup and so tense when you finally get to this thing. And the first part you take is theory, where they ask you about 100 or so questions, and they rapid-fire throw them at you. It's not written. Anything about wine, since the beginning of time all the way to the present, wine laws, wine history, wine, you know, from chemistry, from viticulture, from you name it, that could be on that test. So that is just incessant studying. And then you have service, which is like 10 tables or so that are like mock people you could see in a restaurant. It's like a fake restaurant they set up, basically. Like a fake restaurant. And you know, at one table, they're like, well, I've got 195 guests coming for my daughter's bat mitzvah, and and everyone likes Italian wines. And so we want you to pair all these Italian wines. And then the next table, it's like the Queen of England, and she's really off kind of thing. So they have that for the service portion. Then the last part is my favorite portion, which is the tasting. And that's the three whites and three red glasses of wine in front of you, and you have no idea what they are other than the color. And you have to break them down and show your work and identify the varietal, the region it's from, the vintage, whether it's a good or a bad wine, you know what kind of quality it is. And it is so incredibly difficult. When it's bone dry, really this like crushed slate and crushed chalky note, like crushed hillside. There's white florals, almost like a fresh cut flower, white flowers, white lilies, no evidence of oak. This conclusion, this one is from the New World, from a temperate climate, possible grapes are Riesling, possible countries Australia, age range is one to three years. I think this can only be one thing. Uh, this wine is from Australia, this wine is from South Australia, this wine is uh, from Clare Valley, 2009, Riesling, high quality producer. Wine one is Clare Valley Riesling. Good. You know, the tasting portion, I think when I first started this, I think I carried into it what a lot of people have, and that you think there's an element of BS when people smell and taste wine, and they say, you know, leather, and you go, yeah. oh, okay, I'm sure there's leather and in when, there. When one of the gentlemen says that it's something that smells like a freshly opened bottle of tennis balls. Yeah, well, if you've ever opened tennis balls, you know that smell. It is a, it is a synthetic rubber smell that is like nothing else. Mm-hmm. If you smell Clear Valley Riesling, I promise you, You may not smell tennis balls, but you will smell rubber on there. And they say new pool toy. They say all sorts of different things to to represent that. But when I started this, I thought there was an element of BS. And watching them do this deductive tasting where they're trying to figure out what the wine isn't versus what it is, it made me realize this is not BS. What is the the value of being able to do that, though, I guess would be the question. All right. So I think I'll play devil's advocate here. Does somebody need to identify an Israeli wine to be able to sell you a wine? You know, yeah. do, do they have to know everything about the wine regions of Bulgaria to sell you a glass of wine? Exactly. No. But I look at it this way. The, when people saw this film, they say, well, it's not like they're brain surgeons or it's not like they're, you know, Navy SEALs. Why do they need such a hard test? And you know what I, you know what I thought about it? When I come home from work, I want a glass of wine and I want a good one. I don't need a brain surgeon. I need a glass of wine. <laughs> Most days you need a glass of wine, right. not a brain surgeon. Right. So in my opinion, I look at it also this way. If I'm taking, let's say I'm at dinner with somebody that might be my future wife, and this has got to be a great evening. I mean, it's got to be perfect for a million reasons, and there's a million variables. I want a brain surgeon to help me with my wine. A, bra- a wine surgeon. Absolutely. So A brine surgeon. A brine bra- br- <laughs> surgeon is what I would require. I have. Let me ask you one last question before we let you go. Sure. I'm assuming that you've absorbed a lot of information during the making of this film. If you had to give our listeners some a really cheap, excellent wine that maybe they could pop while they're listening to our show, like what wine pairs well with public radio? What wine? I, the biggest thing I learned from this film is you don't have to spend more than 15 or 16 bucks on an amazing bottle of wine. Great. That's what I learned making this. You know, it's tough. I can give you regions. Okay. Um, like Southern Italy, like Sicilian red wines. That's good for public radio? Why? Because they're cheap and they're delicious. <laughs> I don't know why that's good for public radio. I think it's just good for anybody with, that doesn't want to waste money. Jason Wise, his documentary, Some, hit theaters this week. You can also download it from iTunes. And we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, author Ellen Stein tells us about the magazine that defined modern comedy. And none other than Ralph Nader explains why he's uniquely qualified to answer your etiquette questions. Well, it's being right again and again and again. When the Dinner Party Download continues.
Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, we learn the secret of the most influential humor magazine in recent history. You know, it had uh, naked ladies. Genius. But first, it's time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and we invite a person of substance to answer them. And this week it's politician and activist Ralph Nader. In the 60s, he was a crusader for car safety reform. The fact that your car comes standard with the safety belt is largely due to his work. He founded the consumer advocacy group Public Citizen. In the 90s and the aughts, he ran several times for president of the United States. All the while, he's written hundreds of columns about civil rights, the environment, corporate power, and other issues. Many of them are collected in his new book called Told You So, the big book of weekly columns. And Ralph, welcome. Thank you very much, both of you, Brendan and Rico. So, Ralph, you're here to talk about etiquette. Uh, The title of your book is Told You So. (laughs) Obviously, you've had cause to say that in your career, but should someone say that? Is that an effective strategy for winning (laughs) hearts and minds? Well, I haven't said it in 50 years, but I was <laughs> forced to say it by an important point that I want to make, and that is many prominent people have said, do this, do that, invade Iraq, get rid of uh, regulation of Wall Street, push for nuclear power, all these things, and good things would happen, and they were wrong. And uh, we did the opposite. So it's polite to say, I told you so, if you were right. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> okay. That's fine. <laughs> um, this sort of leads to our next question. The, the columns in this book, they span from the 70s to the past few years. They are not in chronological order. And what struck both of us is that so many of the issues you've addressed, nuclear power would be one of them, economic inequality, they're still issues. It, it seems like that would be discouraging. What, what keeps you in this game? Well, it's being right again and again and again. And I'm not saying this is a... <laughs> Uh, idiosyncratic uh, trait. Uh, Anybody can be right if, A, they do their homework and don't deal in myths and focus on reality, and B, Mm. if they don't censor themselves and speak forthright, they can be much more accurate than the wrongdoers or the Wall Streeters have been. So the answer to your question is simple. I don't like white flags of surrender, and Mm -hmm. I I don't like giving up. Uh, I think we have a, a fiduciary duty with the American people when we know things they don't know that they should know, uh, to keep at it. All right. We know that you are comfortable speaking truth to power, so hopefully you can speak truth to some of our listeners. <laughs> and uh, they'll hear. Let's turn to our questions, and I'm going to start with the first one. Judith in Omaha, Nebraska. And Judith writes, How do you handle a dinner party in which the guests get into a heated debate? Mm. The example I'll give is when we had some, parentheses, former friends over for dinner, and the wife of this couple got into a heated debate with my mother-in-law about nuclear weapons. The incident was one of many that led to the end of that friendship. What do you do? Well, the flip answer is Omaha, Nebraska, Warren Buffett lives there. Why don't you just saunter over to Warren's home because he's against <laughs> nuclear weapons and the proliferation. Oh, right, there you go, Judith. <laughs> uh, the, the other one is this. This is interesting. When you see people at parties starting to get into a heated debate, uh, it becomes clear after the second or third exchange. And so what you say is, excuse me, can I be the moderator here? Uh, uh, oh, you, you know, you both have strong positions. Let's go ahead in a little more organized way. I think that usually does it. Sure, although it must be nice for you because no one wants you to be moderate if they invite you to a dinner party. No, because <laughs> at any dinner parties, you know, when I'm at, they expect political discussion. It isn't like, oh, you know, you're disturbing the calmness and the <laughs> etiquette. Yeah. And, no. They're upset when you relax. Yes. Ralph, are you going to say something about this? You're like, what? I'm just enjoying uh, the lentils. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> life is much more fun when you're. Uh, Perky, right? I guess so. <laughs> That's true. All right. Here's, a, here's our second question from Leah. She is from San Francisco, California. How do you politely decline, she writes, when responding to street canvassers? She says, I know it's a stressful quota mandated job and they're just trying to earn a living, but is a smile and a no thanks more frustrating for them than just ignoring them? Well, hmm. my mother had the best approach, I think. She would always congratulate a canvasser because that canvasser is participating in the democratic process. Agree or not agree. And and it's not easy uh, to stand on a corner or to go door to door. And so she always praised them. Then she asked what was on their mind. And it was a very nice exchange. And, And even when she didn't respond favorably to them, they just felt good because she recognized that their role was essential. They were speaking out. They were making the effort. Mm. So you should engage them, is what you're saying. At least at least compliment them on trying. Very much so, because sometimes it's the only way people can put an issue in the public arena is to go door to door. If they can't get on TV or in a newspaper mm. or on radio, 
show. But Ralph, I imagine you you know, you've been in the public eye for decades now. Sometimes you're running late for something and I'm sure people see you, they approach you. Do you feel like you have there's more pressure on you as Ralph Nader to have to stop and listen and, and talk and congratulate and praise? Yes, and, of course. And, and, the, and I rise to that expectation. Hmm. Because uh, you have to practice what you preach and preach what you practice. And if you think uh, people should have the right of free speech and you'll defend them even if you disagree with them vigorously, you've got to give them the time of day. All right. So here, this is a question that's, uh, from John. We, we told our listeners that you were coming by, and this was his question for Ralph Nader. Best burger in D.C.? <laughs> question mark. <laughs> Not really an etiquette question, but... You've had to deal with some serious issues in your time, Ralph. But... Yeah. Well, go to a great restaurant that has a bookstore and a room for events, public events and debates, and great food at reasonable price. It's called Busboys and Poets. There are about three <laughs> or four of them now in the Washington, D.C. area. And ask for the veggie burger. It's a uh, homemade oh. veggie burger served with arugula, tomato on a wheat bun, you can skip the avocado because it's not organic. Ask for the salad or fruit on the side. It's only $9. And uh, the very uh, wow. atmosphere is exciting. There's great art and great photography on the walls. And you can saunter over to some debate or go over and peruse the books. All right. So you're, so you're a vegetarian, Ralph? Well, when it comes to beef, yes. I see. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but although you're responsible partially for making sure that our beef supply is relatively healthy, right, due to some of the work you did. Yeah, I'm glad you used the word relatively. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. There you go, John. Here is JR in California. He writes, one of my friends often chooses not to wear a seatbelt in the car, citing personal freedoms, etc., I find it completely ridiculous given the years of studies about safety. I've tried to convince him to humor me at least without much luck. Any arguments, or should he just let it be? Well, that reminds me of Ronald Reagan. He once campaigned uh, in Michigan, and he said, airbags are an impediment to human freedom. And what? the press called me up and said, what was my reaction? I said, well, you know, in a narrow technical sense, Ronnie was right. Uh, airbags do block you from the freedom to go through a windshield. <laughs> and so to the friend of JR in California, I would say, uh, he may want personal freedom, but he won't get another chance. Uh, Ralph, do you have a car? Or as I understand, no. it, you don't. You don't. You haven't owned a car in quite some time, correct? Oh yeah, many many years. So many. Because if that... I did, they'd put ads saying I endorsed the model. Uh, in uh. fact, once in, in Minnesota, there's a full page ad, and Nissan, then called Datsun, uh -huh. said Ralph Nader owns a Datsun, and uh, <laughs> I wrote him back. I said, you better have a retraction in big, bold print, because I don't own a Datsun. I don't own a car. So they're very clever. They sent me back the retraction. They said, we just learned that Ralph Nader doesn't own a Datsun, but he should. <laughs> <laughs> you got to give him props. That's pretty good. Ralph Nader, thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave. <laughs> Thank you. They're very nice to ask me those questions. Ralph Nader, the new collection of his commentaries from the 1970s to the present is called Told You So, the big book of weekly columns. And folks, let's be honest, most of us aren't quite as sure of ourselves as Mr. Nader. It's true. If you have a question about proper behavior, exercise your right as a citizen to email it to us. Head to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, and click contact. Or you can call our hotline, a.k.a. the phone at Brendan's Cubicle. The number is 213-621-3554. That's 213-MA-1-ELK-4. And now, time for Chattering Class, the part of the show where we are schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic. The topic today is modern comedy, and specifically how so much of it sprang from the absurdly influential humor magazine, The National Lampoon. Our teacher is Ellen Stein, She's written about culture for publications from People Magazine to the New York Times, and her new book is called That's Not Funny, That's Sick, The National Lampoon and the Comedy Insurgents Who Captured the Mainstream. And Ellen, welcome. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. So, first of all, especially for the younger folks in the audience, they will, they will know The National Lampoon mainly as a name they see above the title of the occasional comedy movie. For them, can you briefly just lay out what it was and the various comedy outlets it begat? Okay. It was started way back in 1970 by two graduates who recently graduated from Harvard, and they had worked on the Harvard Lampoon and done some parodies there. It was 
part of it was very smart, very sharp, very subversive. And the more frat sex and drugs and rock and roll and gross-out humor was always part of the mix, but it was a much smaller part of the mix. It always had sort of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde split. Mm. And over time, Mr. Hyde kind of took over. (laughs) But what they begat was, well, Lorne Michaels would dispute this, but Saturday Night Live to some extent, Judd Apatow movies, The Onion, South Park. They kind of all owe a debt to the humor that was started at the Lampoon. If they weren't directly in line, they were influenced, you know. At the time, there were other national humor magazines when it came out. What about the Lampoon style of humor made that magazine popular as opposed to the others? Well, there were others. There was The Realist, which was more sort of a beatnik hipster kind of thing. There was Monocle, which was more, say, sort of, you know, East Coast, uh, Ivy League, uh, political. Kind of the New Yorker style. Of... Kind of New Yorkery. But what the Lampoon did, it did, well, it had that sex, drugs, and rock and roll element. It had better production values, better paper, uh, and after the first six months, better art direction. And, you know, it had uh, naked ladies in the form of the photo funnies, which was sort of a uh, photo novella with uh, usually a half-naked lady in most of them. So So much for highbrow. It was more populist, I guess. (laughs) It was kind of the the blend of the high and the ultimate lowbrow, but being sort of ironic about how lowbrow they were being, I guess. Exactly. You know, oh, well, we're sort of mocking this, but at the same time, we'll take the commercial uh, benefits of... um, So they're trying to have their cake and eat it, too. Absolutely. And they ate a lot of cake. Mm -hmm. Um, As a radio guy, I would be remiss not to mention the Lampoon actually had a national radio show for a while in the 70s, and it featured everyone from Christopher Guest to Bill Murray. Do you have a favorite sketch, first of all, from the radio show that we can maybe play a clip from? Yes. There's a great one where Christopher Guest plays a culture. Oh, he does it's a, it's a culture show, actually. Perfect. And he introduces it with, like, excruciating correctness. Here, then, with all its socio-religious thematic overtones and psychopolitical undercurrents intact, we are proud and yet, in a way, humble to present Dostoevsky's The Idiot. You After this highly erudite introduction, Bill Murray comes on. Everybody get out of here! There's a lobster loose! Everybody get out of here! He's vengeful! Quickly, cover yourselves with hot butter and carry lemons just in case! You have to squirt them with it and so forth and repel them! Everybody get out of here! Quickly, there's going to be a tragedy! Oh, God! <gasps> ha! This is Roger DeSwans asking you to join us again next week for another classic of the contemporary theater on Front Row Center. You know, I'm fairly lowbrow myself, but I find that very funny. I agree. My, my favorite tale, actually, about the radio show from your book is how they handled switching from an hour-long show to a half hour. Yes, that's very funny. I would love you to tell the audience about it. The radio hour was, for commercial reasons, was cut back from an hour to a half hour. But they didn't tell the audience this. And they just made it sound like they were being cut off. It's genius. There'd be basically an actor saying something, and they would just sort of stop the show mid-sentence. And, they, and, they, and then they said, we're being, you know, we're, we've been forced to cut it short right in and protest. Um, in the late 70s, the movie National Lampoon's Animal House comes out. It is made for no money. Universal Studios doubts anyone will respond to it. What happens? It did extremely well. It spawned uh, toga parties. You know, John Belushi in a toga made the cover of Time magazine. One of the executives says in the book that, you know, people kept turning up. We didn't, weren't doing all that much PR, and they just, the word spread. We don't know how. In the days before the Internet, it went viral by, you know, people speaking to each word other on the phone or something. It spawned a whole genre of film that is still with us today, for better or worse. Yeah, how did it change? It basically changes the nature of all teen movie comedies that follow, Mm. right? What Mm. was new about it? Well, it went in for bad taste jokes in a way that had never been done before. Mm. Again, and you see these two dynamics I mentioned really being played out. I mean, compared to the things that came after and imitated it, you know, it looks like, I don't know, Wes Anderson or something. Yeah, it's very Um, twee almost. Yeah, because it had also a lot of very smart jokes as well. It was about anarchy, I think, as opposed to trying to gross people out for its own sake. You know, some of the people at the Lampoon, indeed, some of the writers felt they didn't think it was as smart as they would have wanted it to be. Along these lines, I think it's safe to say that nowadays the Lampoon brand is overshadowed by Saturday Night Live, which sort of grew out of it, and by The Onion and other humor outlets. South Park, I think, when we're talking about bad pushing the boundaries of taste, we have to mention South Park. Certainly. So what happened? What triggered its decline? Well, the initial audience got older. The initial writers got older and started drifting away. Mm. 
the publisher of the Lampoon had a lot more sway and was able to call the shots a lot more, and he wanted more naked ladies on the cover. They just didn't attract the talent. It was just, you know, like you get some music scenes sometimes where all these great bands come out of one place at the same time. It was kind of like that. And so it was like a baseball team with a real winning streak. Yeah. And then it dissipates. The National Lampoon is the 68 Detroit Tigers, kind of. <laughs> Ellen Stein, thank you so much for uh, telling us about this time and for being our teacher. My pleasure. Ellen Stein's new book about the National Lampoon is called That's Not Funny, That's Sick. It came out this week. And Brendan, I have to reiterate how just totally much I love the National Lampoon Radio Hour. I don't blame you. I'm such a fan. It's great stuff. I really think we should take a few cues from them and suddenly just cut off our show. You know, on second thought, that's just too imitative, right? Totally. We already do the show half naked, you know? That's right. And people, that is the Dinner Party download for this week. But don't despair. Till next time, you can keep up with us on Facebook or on Twitter, where our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. Jackson Musker is our assistant producer's handle. Our interns go by the names James Delahousie, David Kim, and Brittany Martin. Our engineer this week was Chris Clark. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And a hearty hello to our new listeners on KCPW in Salt Lake City, Utah. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Filmmaker David Lynch, the man behind Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks, also writes music. His new album, The Big Dream, comes out July 15th. It features Licky Lee and is called I'm Waiting Here. Bon appétit. That's the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Dude, wait and, a minute. Where's your safety belt? Uh, I will not be forced to wear a safety belt while we're recording the show. Wait, whoa! I'm pulling the studio over right now till you put it on. Watch out! Wow, inflatable tote bags. You're welcome.